are listening to the Island Christian Church of Hope of Podcast. This message is the fourth part of the series called Timeless Truth. Today's message, given on February 18th, 2018, is titled Poetry and Wisdom. This week we celebrated Valentine's Day. For some people it's a lovely day. For some people it's a horrible day. Let me tell you a story about a guy, and you can tell me how well it really worked out. This guy and this girl were interested in each other, and they had kind of maybe started exploring a relationship, and the guy had to be out of town for Valentine's Day. So he's like, okay, you know, when I get to, you know, where he was going, I'll find a card and I'll send it. But of course, you know, like many guys do, he forgot. And so he got to like the last minute, and so he goes to the store to buy a card. And, of course, all the Valentine's cards are now gone, gone, right? So he's like, what do I do? You know, now he could really get himself in some deep trouble here if he does it wrong. So he goes, all right, I got it. I'll find a nice-looking blank card, and I'll write something in it. So he sort of scratches his head, and he puts his mind to it. And this is what he comes up with. And so he writes this in the card, and he sends it. Do you want to know what he wrote? No, you don't want to know? Oh, oh, you do. Okay, good. This is what he wrote in the card. Roses are red. Violets are blue. I'm just sending this card. Hope it will do. I think by your expression, you could guess how it went. Well, um, the gal got this, and then she immediately went on and replied by a text message. Would you like to know what the text message said? (laughs) Here we go. Ready? Roses are red. Violets are blue. I'm sending this now to say that we're through. (laughs) Well, he learned a little bit, and next year, different gal, because the first one, they were done. And so... This one's a little better. And he said, roses are red, violets are blue. There's not a rose as pretty as you. Oh, right? That one's a little better, you know. Um, I could use that one with Anne, I guess, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) But listen, when we hear these, or let's say we're reading them, we kind of immediately know that this is a form of language called poetry, right? And Listen, even if it's not great poetry, we still know that it's poetry, and we know because the second and the fourth lines rhyme, and we figure if something rhymes, it's got to be poetry, but, you know, poetry doesn't always rhyme, okay? In fact, I took an English class in college, and it was called poetry, and I'll never forget because the textbook for that class, and it was some textbooks, you're just like, oh, why do I have this, right? Yeah, Peter knows what I'm talking about. But this was actually a pretty good one. And the the book was called, How Does a Poem Mean? Interesting, right? Not what does a poem mean, but how does a poem mean? And it really taught us, you know, the different things about poetry and how to interpret and understanding it. And, you know, so the, the key is if we can identify that when we read something, that it's using a different form of language then we can use some guidelines in order to understand it properly. Now, the Bible 
is and contains the truth that stands the test of time. I mean, it has just held up through centuries. And yet, if we're honest, on the surface, have you ever read a part of the Bible that didn't really make sense to you? Uh, Of course. Now, that's not a defect in the Bible, but that's a defect or a problem in our understanding. And the problem is sometimes what we're reading is not in a regular, plain form of language or prose. It's not just describing something that happened, but it uses some other form of language. And last week we introduced how do you interpret figurative language. Figurative language is when something is not just using words exactly for what they mean, but it's like, you know, last week we actually did parables. when We looked at some parables of Jesus. Okay? And this series called Timeless Truth is sort of like a do-it-yourself show. Any of you like do-it-yourself shows? You know, or cooking shows? You learn how to cook? And what we've been doing is we've been looking, and I've kind of been giving you some of the things that I've learned through the years of how to properly understand and interpret what the Bible says so that I can accurately get the meaning that was intended by the original author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God's Word, and then once I know that, then how does that apply and affect my life? And so that's what we're doing, and, you know, the the goal of all this is to help us learn not just what the Bible says, but to learn how to understand so that when you read the Bible on your own, you will understand it better yourself. And so this week, we're continuing with two more forms, and I'm calling this poetry and wisdom. Okay, what's poetry? Do you know that a lot of the Old Testament, probably about half of it, is in what's called poetic form. But you might be like, gee, it doesn't sound like it. And that's because the language the Old Testament was written in is the Hebrew language. And Hebrew does not use rhyming as a way to indicate poetry. Okay, it uses a different technique. And once we understand the technique that is used, We can use that and we can gain a much greater understanding when we come across poetry in the Bible. And in addition to uh, the the poetry, the poetry is not just, I mean, an obvious book is the book of Psalms. Those are songs. But there are other books as well that are called the wisdom books, and we'll get to those in a minute. So a large portion of the Old Testament is written in poetic form. And poetry is another form of figurative language. And here's the thing, though. If you translate, because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and if you translate it accurately into English, which is what we all understand, a lot of the poetic form of the language doesn't make it through the translation. You know, because you're using different words, things like that. And so you might be like, well, it doesn't sound very poetic to me because we're only reading it in English. Okay, so either what happens is the language becomes prose or it, somebody has to figure out how to recast it into the poetic form of another language. And there are some Bible translations that have tried to do that. Um, I, perp- I personally don't, you know, use them. But, um, you know, here's the thing. But Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. But it has a corresponding thought from line to line or phrase to phrase, and that thing is called parallelism. When you see 
Hebrew uh, writing and it has one line in the next line or one line in the other, you will find there is so much parallelism when something is said one time and then it is said again in a different way or a different form or maybe it starts saying something and then it adds something to it and it says the same thing again but then adds more onto it. Okay, and quite frankly, some people, when you're reading this, you might be like, gee, this is kind of redundant, isn't it? I mean, you know, when you were taught how to write, you know, weren't you taught, you know, kind of get to the point and take out the redundancy, take out the extra things. And and yet that's exactly the opposite of what happens here. Um, The finest Hebrew speech is filled with structured redundancy. So. The guideline we use once we identify that something is in poetic form, the guideline is we want to use the parallelism that's inherent in this Hebrew poetry to gain more understanding into what the author really means there. And as I said before, in the Old Testament, about half of the Old Testament is in this poetic form. And, you know, we when it's translated into English, um, we might lose it, but when we can identify it, when we see this parallel thoughts, then all of a sudden a light should go off and say, ah, this might be poetic. And the key thing, well, you might feel like, all right, well, that's interesting, but why does it matter? Well, here's why it matters. When the two parallel phrases are brought into close connection with each other, we start to see how one modifies or expands upon or even contradicts the other one. So let's use an example because, you know, you might be like, I'm not tracking with it. I I work well with examples. Maybe some of you do too. Open your Bibles to Psalm 1. Let me start by reading the whole psalm. And then we're going to identify where the parallelism is there. And there's even names for the different kinds. But uh, the names aren't important. What's important is that you're able to identify that there's some parallel thought going on. So let me read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its season or that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless this reading of his holy word. So, did you guys, with me talking about the parallelism, did you happen to pick up on some terms as I was reading it where you start to see, oh, here's something, and then right after it there's something else? Did did you start to get a sense of that? Well, let's pick it apart verse by verse and see what's here. Okay, verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers is contrasted with verse 2 with but he delights in the but his de, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night this is talking about a contrast between what a righteous person does not do 
in verse 1 and what he does do in verse 2. So we immediately have a contrast that's happening there, okay? And um, notice in verse 1, though, how each thought adds to the previous, and it forms a progression, okay? And so it talk, the progression goes, he walks, he stands, he sits, or actually he doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, and he doesn't sit. Okay, so there's a progression here, and when you read it with the rest of the words there, you actually find that each phrase is getting a little bit worse. In other words, walking with the wicked. Well, what does the wicked mean? The wicked means to be loose, to be unstable, to be ungodly. And then that moves to the stand with the sinners. Well, a sinner in this context means somebody who has missed the mark. Somebody who has missed the mark. And then finally, sit with the scoffers. Okay, sit. You know, when you sit, you're parked. You're not moving. You're hanging out. You're staying in this position. And a a scoffer is somebody who's even more committed to evil and to verbalizing things. And, you know, listen, if anyone has ever scoffed at you, you'll just know it, right? It's just not pleasant. And so what happens is one idea or one phrase is leading to the next one, and there's a progression, okay? Well, when one idea adds on to another one, we call this synthetic parallelism, okay? Synthesis. Um, I'm a musician. I play a synthesizer, okay? And a synthesizer takes some very basic waveforms and it puts filters on it and it puts uh, amplified envelopes on it and then you put some effects on it and it turns things and it makes some pretty cool sounds but it starts with something and then it adds to it or modifies it and adjusts it or affects it and so that's what's happening here each line in this phrase is amplifying a little bit more in the case of this this is what you don't do Because when you start standing in the way, when you start walking in the counsel of the wicked, the loose, the ungodly, when you start doing that, well, then that can lead to standing in the way of the sinners, where you start, you know, so you're not just walking by, but now I'm standing, and then eventually you end up sitting and becoming parked in the seat of the people who are very hostile and are really committed to doing evil things. And, you know, I think if we're honest, we've seen this progression play out, you know, especially when you try to say, I, like, like when you first put your faith in Christ, all of a sudden things come up and you're like, gee, I'm not sure I should be doing that. And then you're like, yeah, just, you know, one time won't hurt. And then we do it and then it's like, oh. Lord, forgive me. And that's the right thing to do when we mess up. It is absolutely the right thing to do. But then what happens is this progression multiplies. And so not just walking past it, but now we're standing or eventually we're sitting. And then eventually, you know, what can happen is then we can become a scoffer too. And that's what the blessed person does not do. Okay. And then there's a similar progression in verse 2. This is what the blessed person does do. 
Well, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Okay, that's the word of God. Okay, and so if you have your delight in the word of God, then it becomes so much easier to do the next thing. On his law, he meditates day and night. You know, not just like flip open, okay, let me get a verse for the day, boom, got it. But it's like, I really, this is a pleasure to me. I really like this. And so then we're able to start to sit down and look and see, what does this really say? What does this understand? And that's why I want to teach you these tools of understanding so that you can dig in yourself, you know. I mean, certainly I'm here to help you with stuff, but my goal is not to always, you know, tell you what something means. My goal is to equip you so that you're able to dig in uh, on your own and figure out what it means. Okay, so in verse 2, delight leads to meditation on the word. Okay, and that really reveals what we value. That reveals what we value. Okay, and then there's another parallelism in verse 3. It says, this person, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Okay, so what does a tree need in order to grow? It needs water. So it has a source of getting water. Okay, it's planted. It has a root system. It's rooted in this. Okay, and it yields its fruit. It bears fruit. It does what it's supposed to do. You know, the leaves don't wither. And then it finally culminates it with this parallelism where it says, in all that he does, he prospers. Okay, that sounds an awful lot like a promise, doesn't it? So there's, so we've had three parallelisms, three synthetic parallels where one thought is leading to the next, to the next, to the next. So do you, do you see how that, you see how that works there? Is that making sense? So when you come across one of these, you'll be like, oh, okay, I can see there's a progression here. And then you start to think, hmm, have I ever in my life experience something like this. And if there's a progression, you can even ask yourself, where am I in the progression? Am I going, progressing towards the right way? Or am I, maybe, if, if there's a negative one, am I, you know, uh-oh, watch out. And that's, that's kind of a wake-up call where you can be like, okay, I don't want to go down this path any further. Okay, so this is, this is how, a, a great tool for, for this. Okay, now verse 4 is a turning point. Okay, verse 4 where it says, so in, in the, the beginning, he's talking about the blessed man, okay? And he's saying what he doesn't do, it says what he does, and it talks about the characteristic about how he's constantly, you know, being supplied, and uh, he's not withering. And now it turns the corner. It says, verse 4, the wicked are not so, okay? So now we're talking about the people that are not doing this, and then it says they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Okay, chaff is this part of a, a, a fruit that ju- or a grain that you don't use. Okay, like with wheat, you have the kernels of wheat, and then you have the chaff. And if you take the chaff and you throw it up, the wind will just blow it away, and it doesn't do anything. So this is saying in verse 4, it's contrasting with the wicked that are not so, and it also it does have a, uh, a uh, figurative form of speech. A comparison with like or as is a... Simile. So that's a simile right there. They are like chaff, the wind dries away. It's not saying they're chaff, but they are like chaff there. 
Okay, so um, that that's not really a parallelism. That's just a figurative language. But now we get another par- parallelism in verse five. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Okay, this is this is why we're here, because without Jesus and somebody putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is what's going to happen. They're not going to be able to stand at the end of time or when they meet their end in the judgment. And sinners cannot stay in the congregation of the righteous. Okay? And it's not because of us and our righteousness, but it's because of what we've done with what Jesus has done. These, the, the, this parallelism is a little different kind. We call this one a synonymous parallelism. It's synonyms. It's basically just saying the same thing twice for emphasis because this is really important. I mean, this is key here. And that's why we teach and preach and proclaim the gospel. That's why Pastor Paul goes on the mission field and he's taken some of you with him. That's why when you're in your workplace, you know, and you have an opportunity to share the good news with someone or just even, you know, give them a loving, uh, you know, side hug when they're going through a rough time and you pray for them, you pray with them, and you give the reason for the hope that was in you. The reason why we do that is because the wicked will not stand in the judgment, okay? And sinners will not in the, stand in the congregation of the righteous. So there's, this, is, this is a very uh, emphasized point there, okay? And then one more verse in the psalm, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, Okay, this is a parallelism, but this is a different kind. This is called an antithetic parallelism. It's, it's the opposite, okay? And so what's happening here is it's saying, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, okay? And the, actually, the book of Proverbs, one of the wisdom books, is full of these kind of things where it says one thing, and then it says the parallel is kind of what happens to the opposite. So those are just some uh, ways to, to help us understand the poetic form. So rather than just reading it straight through, I hope that was helpful here. Okay, so now that we understand, let's try to pull this all together. The important thing when we read scripture is we always go back and we want to find what is the primary interpretation of what we read. And as I hear this, There's a lot of contrasts here. There's the contrast between the people that are righteous and the contrast between the people that are wicked. And at the end, it talks about two different outcomes. So in a sense, it talks about what we value. You know, do you delight in the law of the Lord? And so if I had to come up with a way to interpret this psalm to summarize it all, I would say it's this. Contrasting values lead to different outcomes. Contrasting values lead to different outcomes. Because if you value the Lord and the things of the Lord, and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, doesn't say that here, but the Old Testament is all pointing forward and was fulfilled in Christ, 
If you've done that, well, then you will stand in the judgment because you're standing not on what you've done, but you're standing on what Jesus did, and he was righteous. But if you have not, if you're contrasted to that, you know, if you have different values and you're going the other direction, well, you know, I'll just read what the scripture says. Let it speak on its own, but the way of the wicked will perish, okay? So I think that's the primary interpretation that I came up with for Psalm 1. Well, once we find the interpretation, then we start to look at the text and we say, well, what is it, how does that apply? Okay, and I found, you know, you can find a bunch of applications. I found six in here. Let me just read what I came up with. These, you might come up with the same, you might come up with different, and that's the beauty of the applications. We really can't, I mean, we could disagree a little bit, but in general, it, if we read scripture and we come up with something that's so different than what everyone else has come up with, Maybe we've misinterpreted it, but we can come up with lots of different applications because you might be going through something different than you are, and she's going through something different, and that's the beauty of Scripture. When we read it, God aims it like an arrow, laser-guided, straight into our heart at the thing that we need to hear, and then we can apply it. So let me just share the six applications I came up with. One is, and this is, you know, uh, well, let me just read them. Watch where you wander. It can lead to worse things. Living according to God's word builds strong roots. It's hard to meditate on God's word until you first delight in it. There is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous are blessed and grounded, but the wicked get blown around. And the last one, judgment is final and eternity is long. And that's why we're here. Because we don't want to see anyone go to hell. We want everyone that Jesus is calling to faith in him to turn and be forgiven and have new life in Christ. That is amazing. That's why. That's what gets my blood go pumping in the morning. So, so do you see how the parallelism? Do you see how that kind of you know you, you sort of take all this stuff, you understand it, you try to boil it down to a framework, and then you blow it wide up again, and you find the applications to your life. Does that make sense? You tracking with me on that? If you have any questions, I would love to talk with you after the service on it because, you know, this is kind of how I do it and many other people do it this way. And uh, so anyway, now you might be saying, well, wait, you're talking about Hebrew poetry, right? Well, what about the New Testament? Because, you know, those who have studied for a while know, well, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. How does that work in Greek? What kind of poetry is there? Well, Here's the thing. you got to understand this. The New Testament was written by people whose thought patterns were molded by the Old Testament and by Hebrew ways of thinking. In fact, Jesus used parallelism oftentimes as he was teaching. Just for one example, flip to Matthew chapter 7. I mean, you know, you can find tons of instances of this. I'm just going to read one, okay? Matthew 7, starting at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, 
and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Do you see there's a parallelism there between the wide gate and the narrow gate, between many going through the wide gate and few going through the the, the narrow gate, and it's easy to go through the wide gate. If you do nothing, you'll just, we'll all just slip through the wide gate, okay? And the destination of that is destruction. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there is a parallelism there, okay? And, you know, it's almost kind of talking about the same that Psalm 1 is talking about, isn't it? You know, and not not exactly, but the idea is that why is the gate narrow and the gate the way hard that leads to life? Well, it was hard for Jesus because it cost him his life. And you cannot go through anyone other than Jesus. There's not two entrances to the expressway. There is one on-ramp. And that is through Jesus. And, you know, it's hard to follow Jesus. Because he wants us to do things different than the way we used to do things, which is to do things the way everybody else is doing it. And he he wants us, he changes and transforms our sinful nature. And he wants us to be changed by him. So, There's tons of parallelism that you'll see in the New Testament, and you can use the same, you know, you can use the same principles. Identify it, and then look for the thought and see, does it, um, does it, are they synonyms emphasizing it, or is there a building process where it's moving on, or is it an antithesis? This one's an antithesis, where one is contrasting and uh, the, the other. So, okay. Last part of the books, now we talk about the wisdom books. The wisdom books in the Bible are basically Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, okay? And these are written primarily in the same poetic form that we talked about. You see, Psalms, where we started, Psalms is filled with expressions of emotion, pain, joy, and praise. And it shows us how to process our experiences before God. Proverbs is a very different kind of book. Its main message is, Tim Keller said this, he says, the the main message is, you've never really thought enough about anything. Isn't that great? You know, you've never really thought enough about anything. And Proverbs, when I read Proverbs, I'm like, oh, and it just triggers extra thinking about this, and it's, it's about how, after having trusted in God, we should live our faith out. I love the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is not necessarily knowledge. There are some very smart people that are not very wise. I've always told the story about a former boss that I had this guy had PhDs. He was brilliant in math. He could, you know, just give him a blackboard and away he went. And then he always kept going down when we'd be working on designing something and he would go to grab the soldering iron 
And he would pick up the hot end of the soldering iron. And he's like, ow, you know. And he would just, you know, he goes, I don't know why I can't get the right side of the soldering iron. Well, he had a lot of knowledge, but the basic wisdom, the skill in living was missing in his life. Okay. And so uh, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And being poetic, each wisdom book does contain lots of parallelism. Let's just look quickly. Turn to Proverbs. Uh, We did Psalm 1. Let's do Proverbs 1 and just see some stuff that's in there. Proverbs 1. We'll read three verses starting at 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Okay, well, there's synonymous parallelism here. It's basically saying they hated knowledge and they did not choose to fear the Lord. They wouldn't take my counsel and they despised all my reproof. You ever know somebody like that who doesn't want to take advice? You know anyone like that? Yeah. It's tough to deal with them, right? You can say anything you want, and it's just not going to matter, right? Well, what does it say? Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man or woman sows, that he or she shall reap. Okay, so there's a parallelism right there. That's a synonymous parallelism. Now turn to Proverbs 15. And we're going to see the other two kinds in two adjacent verses. Proverbs 15 verse 2 says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Okay, that's the antithetic one. Okay, it's, it's two. It, it's talking about two opposites. It's talking about the wise, and it's talking about the fool. And the wise commends, and it embraces knowledge, and the fool just spouts off foolishness. Okay, that's one. And then the, the very next verse after that, verse 3, says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. So the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Does God have eyes? Probably not, but this is called an anthropomorphism. Oftentimes, because God is a spirit, you know, how do you describe God? But oftentimes, people will use things that we know, we all have eyes, and we use them to project them onto God, okay? And so this is what it's saying. The eyes of the Lord are every place. Okay, God is not just looking here and then misses what's behind it. I mean, moms have eyes in the back of their head, but God has eyes everywhere. Okay, and so they're in every place, and they keep watch on the evil and the good. So that's a case of that synthetic parallelism. It's saying, you know, God has eyes everywhere, and he watches both the evil and the good. Okay, so that's just three, and in that case, the second line completes, advances, or develops the thought of the first line by supplying additional ideas. So listen, become sensitive to the Hebrew idea of poetry. 
Parallelism is a correspondence in thought, and this way of thinking spills over into prose as well. Okay, I want to do one final thing, and then we're closing this series. But I can't close this series without sharing this with you, because this is so important. You want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. You see, some people, when they read something that they don't understand, they go immediately to the notes in the study Bible, or they'll pull out a commentary, or they'll look online and see, you know, oh, what does this mean? Those things are helpful, but the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Always interpret a passage in the Bible in the light of the rest of the Bible. If you come across a passage and think it's teaching some new belief or doctrine that's taught nowhere else in the Bible, or it appears contradictory to it, guess what? You've misinterpreted it. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible, and the Holy Spirit will never disagree with himself. So interpret the word of God using the word of God. Okay, now, you can use parallel passages in other parts of the Bible to shed light on a passage which might be a little obscure right where it is in its immediate context. And here's two guidelines that you can use for using Scripture to interpret Scripture. The first one, favor the plain, clearer passage over a more obscure or ambiguous one. Because if you're comparing things, there's always something that's going to be clearer or it's going to be much broader. Use those rather than building a whole belief system on some obscure verse somewhere. Because if you do the opposite, what you're doing is you're going to contradict the plain teaching of the many other passages in Scripture. So that's one guideline. The second guideline is this. Favor the simple or more natural explanation rather than a more complicated or complex explanation. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 16, 28, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Jesus said this, okay? He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, you know, he's there, he's saying, basically, there's some people here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, what does that mean? Some people have said, oh, gosh, you know what? Jesus' kingdom is going to be fulfilled, and now they look back and they say, yeah, that happened in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. <clears throat> nope, that's not it. Some people will say, you know, that, um, you, know, you know, this is referring to the future kingdom. Uh, but you know what? That's not true either, because guess what? Everyone who heard that at the time, what did they do? They died. Has the kingdom come in its fullness yet? Not yet. We're waiting for it. We're hoping for it, but it's not here yet. So what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus didn't know what was going on? No, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Okay, so a simpler explanation is he was referring to a glimpse into his kingdom that would be experienced six days later on the Mount of Transfiguration in the very next verse after that. 
And that's when Jesus and a couple disciples went up on the hill. There was a transfiguration. It was a uh, heaven opened up and they saw a glimpse of what was eventually going to be fulfilled. It's the very next verse and the, the verses that follow. So that's a much simpler and more natural exploration, explanation than some complicated scheme of, well, this has to happen in this. So those are two guidelines. Follow the plain, clearer passage over a more obscure or ambiguous one and favor the simple or more natural explanation rather than a more complicated or complex interpretation. So, what do I want you to do? When you read the Bible, don't just speed read over it, but digest it. Think about it, meditate on it, and use some of these tools to help understanding it so that you can get the right interpretation. So, let me just quickly review. Here's the tools that we've learned in this series. And by the way, if you would like to hear more detail on them, you can go back online and listen to any of the messages in this series. Use the website address that's on your bulletin. Here are the tools. First of all, find the ordinary meaning. We said, there's a great saying, it says, when the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Sometimes language is just plain, and take the Bible for what it says. But if it doesn't make sense, otherwise, it could be because it's in a different type of language. And if it's figurative language, apply the guidelines that we talked about for parables or for poetry or for wisdom books. And you always want to consult the context of the verse. Find the single meaning, the primary interpretation, and then find the applications to your life. As we do this, I believe that we will get so much greater benefit from God's word, his timeless truth.